We all live in parallel universities and everyone has to be respected because that's where the person lives and that is the person's life and I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. I'm talking from how my universe works. I have no knowledge of how your universe works. If you come to me, then you've got some interest in the universe I'm in and if I can share some of that and it's going to help you, that's fantastic. But if you live in a universe where nothing I say is true, I love you, go well, we have nothing in common, probably better not to meet again, but have a great life. And I'm not saying that nastily, mm-hmm. I'm just sort of saying, if I can't be of any use to you, walk on. And if you can't be of any use to me with the greatest love in the world, I'm going to walk on, because I'm not going to waste your energy or my energy getting into something we can't resolve. This conversation touches on some quite complicated and dark subjects such as death including the death of babies terminal illness cancer the impact of murder and that kind of thing how to place those events in a wider context in a spiritual context it also has a lot of light in it it's a conversation about comedy forgiveness happiness love things like that in the corner of the room was sitting Christianity rotting quietly with a nice pink rug over it and a load of tea lights and candles but it was still there going you hate me you hate me you hate me and I did so I realized that I had to do something about that and that meant getting my fingers dirty and going down into it and finding out what was the truth underneath it hello I'm Dave I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Maggie Whitehouse. Uh, Hello Maggie. Hello Dave. Uh, We're at the Royal Festival Hall. Normally I record in the blue bar but today there's lots and lots of children everywhere in in the building so we've come up to we're we're next to the balcony terrace on the fifth floor for royal festival hall fans Uh, that's where we are looking out at the thames and london sort of parts of the london skyline with a bit of art in front of us and lots of kind of people in the background so that's where we are we're sitting down actually next to a seat uh, yeah exactly we're sitting on the floor i'm a great fan of floors (laughs) Well, I've got lots of floors, so... uh... Have you? Well, there you are, we're friends already. You've got floors, you must like floors too. Absolutely. And it's always funny to sort of, like, go into the official podcast bit. Where do we Uh, start? The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Facebook. Yeah, right, it's kind of a very... very I love Facebook. And every time it really hacks me off, I kind of know that it's my problem, you know? Nobody can push your buttons unless you've got buttons to push. And there are times when people, friends of mine, known friends and unknown Facebook friends, get into conspiracy theories that I want to go, oh, for God's sake! And then I realise I am reacting. So whatever they're thinking is teaching me something about how intolerant I may be or something like that. But then I do usually unfriend them. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable thing to do at certain points. I've very rarely unfriended someone one over the years but there's certainly many people who I uh, find a frustrating influence on my feed I agree with you I think you do still learn something I'm quite happy actually in lots of ways that my Facebook feed isn't the bubble that a lot of people talk about their Facebook feeds being like I do have a lot of opposing views come up in my feed which I think is probably healthy for me mm. although obviously I'd like them all to agree with me as they don't I'd like to know that they don't yes uh, so that I'm not living in the 
this world where I'm so shocked when I come across those views in the in the real world. I know, and it's very good for me because actually I was when I was a child I was very much a wimp. When I'm talking about subjects I'm very good at, then that's fine. If I've got the sort of knowledge and the experience in the background, I can be quite authoritative. But when people are, are nasty or, or difficult or and I'm not I was never taught how to argue or anything. My in my family it was one of those ones where we don't show anger dear. We, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. Right. So I never learned how to have a good constructive argument with anybody. And Facebook's actually very good for me because if somebody puts something that I don't understand or I don't agree with or I think is absolute what I call wanky bollocks, if you'll pardon the expression, <laughs> which means too far new age. I'm very fond of spirituality in the new age, but some of it is just... <laughs> but some of everything is just... <laughs> and I, I will now go in and say... I don't understand or I don't agree and it's incredibly empowering for me to be able to do that from a distance and no. then read how they come back and, and go okay they're being hostile and then I need to go away and say no it's not about me it's about them we're having a disagreement here so I find it an incredibly useful resource for somebody who's a bit of a wimp. Right. Funny, a lot of people find it the other way. I mean, people who find these things kind of distressing can, can find Facebook even more distressing, I think. Yeah, so basically I put a call out for my, my, the people who I already knew on Facebook to see if I could get new guests that way. Um, and what surprised me is what happened was people started tagging in people. So you're someone who I kind of only know via someone else because you were tagged into my Facebook feed. So that's, that's how our acquaintanceship began. But that's how we meet people. Last week, um, I'm a bit croaky in case you've noticed. I'm sort of losing my voice. So it's really silly of me to do this interview because I've got a comedy performance to do tonight. But oh I'm, I'm trusting that all will be well with a certain amount of fruit juice and ginger. Um, <laughs> but last week we had my husband and I had a guy from Texas and his wife come to visit us because we'd met on Facebook. And last year we had a couple from New Zealand come and stay with us because we'd re made really good friends on Facebook. Right. So it can be absolutely extraordinary in that people who are acquaintances and get to know you through synchronicity can become genuine friends. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've had that... that experience more with Twitter than Facebook I think but probably with Facebook too certainly once you've made that initial connection with somebody Facebook can really flesh that out so mm. that so that you may have only met someone once but you've had like loads and loads of very long conversations with them so after a year you feel like you really know I mean, you do you, you do. do know them really well but in just in a different way than we're, we're kind of used to getting to know someone yeah no I'm I'm, I'm I'm frequently a kind of defender of social media and the internet I don't like the idea that people say it makes us unconnected because I've never felt more connected with people all over the world than I do, you know, have done since the internet has I think it depends out. on the person and how they use mm -hmm. it. And I, I always take a Sabbath. I take one day a week completely away from social media and away from all phone calls to do with business as well. It's usually a Sunday, but this week it's going to be Monday. And I think that's very good for me because then I spot when I'm addicted to stuff. Right. When it becomes too hard to turn it off, then I know I've got to turn it off. And I think that that's the only danger, but it's like everything. Shakespeare put it so beautifully when he said, there's nothing bad or good, but thinking makes it so. And as soon as you think about something, you put your opinion on it and your ego comes in and what you think is right and what is wrong comes in. And we have this amazing propensity with human beings because we are immensely psychic and immensely connected to each other in that if we really hate something we're going to attract that just as much as we repel it and, and as you know I, I work with uh, bible studies a mystical interpretation of the bible and there's a thing called the book of Job which is about a man who's um, tempted by God and loses everything because God says Satan says to God 
um, you can't I'm going to get this man and God says no no matter what happens to this man he'll stay with me and there's this kind of it's, it's an apocryphal mythical kind of story but the most powerful thing Job says in it for me he says the thing I feared most has come upon me and that is what I love about all these texts, the religious texts, is right underneath all the cutting off of foreskins and the fighting and the stupidity and that, is, are these things that go, yes, if you really fear something, you're putting energy into it and you're actually drawing it by your energy. And that's biblical. It's not just New Age stuff. You know, this is teaching that we've had for century upon century and underneath all this religious dross is these, these truths. And I look at my friends on Facebook who are attracting more and more negativity into their life by going on and on and on about the negativity. Yes, you've got to call things when they're dangerous or bad, but if you keep focusing on them, your newsfeed's going to fill up. It's just like that fact that if you buy something on Amazon, Facebook knows. If you just look at something on TripAdvisor, the internet now knows, and it's reflecting the fact that that is the reality for humanity when we focus on something the universe knows and it brings it to us and that's both amazing and scary don't you think yeah no i mean i, I agree with with that in lots of ways i think it's a, a complicated thing i mean i think in a way a lot of my work and a lot of the sort of my angle on things is that we don't sort of talk about um, sad things or negative things enough often as a culture. I find that, that culturally sometimes there's too much of a focus on optimism. Um, but I also agree that a focus on, on, on negativity also it c can become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Somewhere in the middle is, now, is where i Now, there you've, you've put your finger on a very, very interesting thing, and you're absolutely right. I don't think it's a good idea to follow down the line of they done me wrong and the, the pity party. But we don't have any good relationship with death anymore. Right. We don't have any good relationship with tragedy. We don't right. understand about proper grieving. We don't understand about expressing valid anger. And because we don't understand about those things, they've been so repressed, as you say. Then we get into what Caroline Mace, the amazing American author and psychologist, talks about, which is woundology. If we can't express, if we don't have rituals to release things, if we don't have right. a proper um, expression of how we feel and what's going on for us, we can't let go of that wound. And then we go on recreating it because it's not been dealt with. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. I mean, I guess the other thing that, that kind of slightly troubles me about the idea of we bring these things to us is I don't... I don't want that to then end up being a kind of situation where we blame people for the bad things that happen to them. Um, just as much as I think we shouldn't praise people for the good things that happen to them in a certain, certain element, there's a kind of luck, randomness uh, to the world that is kind of outside of whatever we intend, intention, I think. But, but at the same time, I think it's, there's some truth in... in I mean, I'm, I'm with Niels Bohr, like, that the, the, uh, he said something that, about there being trivial truths and uh, profound truths, and a profound truth is where the opposite is also true. Yes. And I think that, that this is a, the kind of area of profound truth. It is, it is true to say that we draw down badness to us in some ways, or sadness or negativity to us by being negative, but it, there's also something uh, where it's the complete opposite of that, and we don't and those things happen to us and 
and it's not our fault. You know, both of those things are true. It's complicated. I absolutely agree, and it is complicated. It's both complicated and simple, and we've yeah, gone straight right. straight into really the law of karma, haven't we? Right, we've got into big things. What just goes from around media, comes yeah. around. Now, I um, a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is uh, a blood cancer. Was I responsible for that? Was I to blame for that? Yes and no. Absolutely not. It's in my genetic structure. But I also follow the teaching of uh, Bruce Lipton, who says there's no such thing as genetic inheritance, but there is environmental inheritance. So I'm not saying that anybody is responsible for or to blame for getting cancer or anything like that. But the environment in which they live can contribute to it. And nine times out of ten, the bad things that come to us come to us because of the environment in which we live. And that can be the environment of our parents, of our peers, of our work, and the fact that we're utterly miserable or we're depressed or something. Is that our fault? Absolutely not. But the moment you suddenly realise, I'm in the wrong environment, I need to do something about it, then to a certain extent there is a responsibility. And we really find that very difficult to get out of these difficult situations. We are so wired into social structures, family structures, we need to work, the world's run by economics nowadays. Right. No what are we going ch- to yeah. do? Do I go and live in a, on, a, on a croft in Scotland? But there is also the fact that's really true that so many people who have got um, what I actually call a life-enhancing illness, which I'm sorry, that sounds really wanky bollocks, but in my case it was a life-enhancing illness because I thought, why did I contract this? I'm, I'm a positive person. I'm not going to say I'm a good person because I'm not. I do my best, but, you know, and I thought, I was happy but let's have a look why I've walked into this why I've walked into this morphic field that I needed to attract something like this because I thought I was happy and I started sort of unraveling things and I found things in my life that once I knew about them I had to sort right. and I'd also know of some people who've had difficult diseases we really are going straight into the deep stuff aren't we <laughs> who've had difficult diseases who just dropped everything and walked away right. they've walked away from partners they've walked away from jobs they've walked away from that and they've got better but I also know other people who've dropped jobs and walked away from partners and walked away from things and haven't got better. Right. So it's all about what's going on in you. We are such incredible, complex people. And there are other times, too, where I think... I worked as a hospice chaplain once. And sometimes you get sick because it's your time to go. And we don't acknowledge that. Well, there is that, definitely, yeah. And we really don't give that any credence because we always have to... I don't know if you notice, people are always saying they're fighting cancer. Fighting cancer is putting more energy into cancer. You know, if, if it's t- your time to go, what you need is people who are going to be with you on the journey of dying. And I'm, I'm, I am not on that journey right now. One day I'm, I will be on that day, right. that journey. And one of the things about having had an illness is that it's made me realise that when the time comes to die, I want to die well. Right. I want to die sure. consciously. I want to be at peace with dying. And I'm nowhere near that. I mean, but that's the ideal way to die in lots of ways. But then the thing is that there's so much chance and luck as well. Like, for as much as there... I think there definitely is now an an emphasis so much on cure that we forget that death happens regardless at some point in everyone's life. And so this idea of we can't stave it off forever, it's kind of hubris to think that we can. But at the same time, also, death happens suddenly and surprisingly in ways that aren't kind of... We don't all get six months to, to... 
yeah, make all of our amends and, and make everything right before we go. A lot of the time, you know, you just, you, you know, you might be incredibly young walking down the street and get hit by a car and go in a moment. Absolutely. Know. I've got friends on Facebook who've lost babies. Right. Uh, one particular, her baby was fine until it was actually being born and it died in the birth canal. I think the cord got wrapped around its neck. Was that her fault? No. Absolutely That not. was just a terrible tragedy. Yeah. And she, she did go through years of... of um, campaigning with the medical profession to find out who was to blame for it and that actually probably hurt her as much as the baby dying and that's the culture we've got now which is who is to blame and no there's no point in going who is to blame sometimes it makes you feel marginally better but it's all making it bigger what happened to her has actually transformed this woman she now runs uh, awards for wonderful service for people around baby deaths Mm. And I was wonderful. I was lucky enough to host one of those awards for her. And the first thing I had to say was, there's not a single person here who'd rather not be here mm. because we wouldn't have been in a world where babies die. We wouldn't right. have been here where we lost our own children. We wouldn't have been here where we had to look after women and men whose children have died. So, point one, we don't want to be here at all, but we are here. But look at the miracles that have come out of the lives of these people who suffered. So it wasn't her fault. It was one of those terrible tragedies completely out of the blue that happens. But what good she's done from it. Right. That's it's extraordinary. She's yeah. been a huge help to other people. So was it a terrible thing that happened that, that her son died? Yes. But what a gift he gave the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what you mean about that. It's certainly like, like I've had sort of bad experiences in my life, not necessarily as, as bad as losing a child. Um, but I, I, I can't look at them as... I'm not glad they happened, no. right? I don't think that, for example, bullying make, builds your character. I'm not one of those people no, who No, I says, got bullied at school right. and I didn't like it no, either. Absolutely, <laughs> but that said, definitely I, in my life, have managed to find ways of taking those sad things and learning some things from them, and they have been kind of... They're, they're essential to who I am now. I, mm. I wouldn't take them away now because the things I've learned as a result of them, um, I'm glad to have learned. I'm glad to have these aspects of me and those things helped to make those aspects of me possible. So I'm, But at the same time, I'm, I'm also very wary of sort of saying, yeah, that all bad experiences can, can be learned from or are positive and it does depend on how you how you deal with them but it's not even just that like it's not someone's fault if they're not capable of dealing no. with things as well I mean I know no, I know you're not saying not. that this no, is the, but, uh, the but thing it, of this it may sound area. as if I am yeah. it's hugely complicated and all sorts of things happened to me when I was a child that I was completely incapable of doing anything about right. and were part of my family's makeup. Yeah. And my mother wasn't perhaps the best of mothers, but once I knew what her mother had done to her... Right, I have a very similar feeling. I know exactly. That... She threw me a much softer ball than right. my mother flew to Absolutely. her. <laughs> so she did a really good job, so there's no point in going around blaming her, but it also means that I've got some damage. Yeah. And I'm not the best person I'd like to be because of that. But right. is it her fault? No. No, and it's complicated that, like, I've had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, looking back, I understand that my mum, you could describe what she did in lots of ways as uh, emotional abuse, how she treated her children. But the complication in that is that she didn't know that that was what she was doing. No. And that's something that, sure, there are lots of people who do know that that's what they're doing, and that's a different that's kind a different of problem. That's a different ballgame, yes. But, but something that has been interesting to me to realise is that... that yeah, someone can do things without knowing they're doing it, and so you can't have the same level of blame for them, which is not to say that their actions aren't exactly the same as if they'd have meant to do it. 
it just means that the way you deal with it, the way you process it, and the way that you think of them as a person is different. Yes, which, which brings us neatly onto the subject of forgiveness, which is the biggest, biggest thing in in the world for everybody, but especially in Christianity, because I'm an ordained as an independent Catholic priest, so right. I've got some affinity with Christianity, not the stuff that says if you're not a Christian you don't, don't go to heaven because that's completely contrary Good. to the teachings well, of Jesus. Is, that's and my favourite kind of Christian. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous if you read the New Testament, um, but anyway, we can get back to that later. <laughs> yeah. But the issue of forgiveness is so important because people miss the point about forgiveness. They go, I can't forgive. That person was cruel and heartless and mean. And one of the parents, one of the Moors murders victims, she was on a TV show ages ago which really really struck me because she said she was a Christian. She said the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, but she couldn't say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because I can't forgive those two for doing what they did to my son. And, well, yeah, but the thing is, she, her life was still destroyed 30 years later because of what had happened to her son. The whole point of forgiveness is it is not about condoning what happened. What happened was evil. It's about letting yourself free from it. Right, there's an interesting... There's and that's so important and so difficult. Forgiveness is about being able to be happy again yourself. And a lot of people think it's, it's a disservice to those who've died or who've been tortured or who've been cruelly mis, mistreated to forgive because they've got to hold on to that pain on the behalf of the person. But I'm fairly sure that once somebody's dead, they're happy. And they're probably going for the other side. Please be happy. Please live your life. I'm okay now. Please, please be happy. Right. I mean, that's interesting. There's a quote by Lily Tom, uh, Tomlin that I find uh, very, I found very useful over the years, which is uh, forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. Yes. And that is for me what it is. It's 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 absolutely that. It's it's going. If I keep being angry with my mum or with other people who've mistreated me through the years, then. Um, then that, that's, I can't change that. I'm being angry with a past thing that happened that I can't do anything about. Um, but at the same time, I'm also kind of cautious about um, insisting on forgiveness as well because it's a complicated thing and it's something that people have to... It's a process someone has to go through and I, I absolutely understand why many people, particularly murder victims, for example, um, are going to find it very hard to forgive. Yeah. Um, but I'm always very, very impressed by by people in those kind of situations who do. Yes. And you don't. I feel like they don't get as represented as well. I think that often that's not as interesting a story for the media in a weird way. And so we don't don't hear from people who are, are forgiving. And I'm always like sometimes you see it on on a, a news story, and I, and I I'm, I'm like that's great. And, yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it's forgiveness in a way that is trying to help the now. What is yeah. best for solving now? It's like. You know, it's it's complicated. It doesn't mean, like, you know, when you look at it on big geopolitical situations, you know, like obviously uh, in in Israel, forgiveness has to happen on both sides. Mm -hmm. But that is not necessarily condoning any action nope. on either side. But if you don't get to a point where where you forgive, you can't move on. And like that's that's what the process that's happened in Northern Ireland and all of those sorts of things is about that. Yes, and I mean, we all think there's nothing we can do about the big things, but actually individuals doing individual things. And I quite often say to people, and they sometimes go big-eyed at me and say that's a very simplistic view. But actually, I think that women have a huge responsibility when it comes to peace, because still in many of the cultures of the world, the woman is doing most of the cooking yep. and the shopping. Yep. And if all the women stopped being willing 
to train their sons to go to war and their daughters too now and actually said to soldiers or terrorists I'm distinguishing between soldiers and terrorists but you know yeah. but anybody who was willing to go to war saying okay you can go to war you can go fight other people you can go and kill other mothers children but as long as you do I will not cook for you and I will not have sex with you sure now I mean, a lot of women would die in some of the difficult places in the world a lot of women would die for doing that but I bet you if all of them did it there would be a change I mean that's an interesting I think it's an interesting point of view and I I very much I very much agree with the central premise of it which is people are too complicated well I guess what I think is it's the men's responsibility to also do that too Um, men condition men to be men um as do women. I agree with that part. I mean, I think when we think about feminism and stuff, often we forget the role that women have in um, reproducing patriarchy, in establishing that men should be men and women should be women. Um, I, I, so I, I fully agree that women have some part in that, but I definitely don't think that they have the full only... Oh, no. And I'm not saying that you do, but I mean, I guess I, I would like to... I feel like women get it worse in this deal anyway. I'd like men to not refuse to, uh, to, 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 to refuse to be men in this, in this standard way. It's not just the job of mothers, I guess, is what I'm saying. No, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's interesting because I do Bible studies. Um, and one of the things that, that is quite marked is that in ancient days, and still in some um, what we would call primitive cultures but aren't primitive at all, you know, ones where they're living in this social structure and living on the land, like still with the Maasai and people like that. As a general rule, the child is the complete responsibility of the mother for the first seven years of their life. And the human brain is is wired in a way that a, a baby... I was studying this with a guy called Bruce Lipton, the biology of belief, who's fascinating. Um, and for the first five years of their life, a child is basically in the theta state of, of consciousness, which is the hypnosis state, the, the state of, of most rest when you're most receptive. So a child up to the age of five, six, seven is learning constantly from the environment. And it's set in what I think is called the reticular activating system of the brain. Up to that age, the repetition and the teaching of, of the parents, and it used to be the mother, was set in that child's brain so they would learn what they were good at, what they were bad at, what behaviour was appropriate to keep them alive. Because the human ego is all about keeping you alive. It's not about keeping you nice or anything like that, but keeping you alive. And if you're suitably programmed, we're all programmed at that point. That's how the child is. And then after the age of seven, they get into the frantic learning phase of things. Uh, But everything is based on those first five to seven years of your life, about how safe you felt, how valued you felt, how looked after you felt. And it starts off with whether your mother looks into your eyes while you're feeding at her breast. If she doesn't look in your eyes and you have nowhere to look, you have to turn within. But if we don't, in the modern world, we don't have... I mean, I've got lots of friends where the mother and the father both work because they have to because of the economics. So the child is get, has nannies and different nannies and then preschool and different people. So they're getting different teaching from different people about what's right. And there's no, there's no grounding, there's no foundation. I know what you mean, but in a way that, that appeals to me the idea of a, a collective raising a child rather than an in, one individual. If it's a collective, that's fine. Because, I mean, the thing is, you know... That, that's very much a lottery and the, the, like if you have a mother who does whatever or whatever and also if the mother's got a life that allows her to do that and it's 
I don't know. And also, I mean, some of the biology you're talking about there, I think, is is still in the contested phase of like sure. different people have different different opinions. And I, I've certainly read sort of slightly different op- opinions about some of how those things happen. So yeah, the second question I ask everybody, um, which is kind of, I'm asking quite late in the day, so it's quite interesting, I, and I guess you've already answered it, but I, I'd like to hear what your kind of official answer would be, I guess, if, if someone asked, asked you this, is what do you do now? About what? Well, what, what do you do now? Like, if someone asked you that at a dinner party, what would you say? What, what do I do? Yeah. What do I do for a living? Well, yeah, but I add the now just to make it kind of oh, well, ambiguous I, I'm so you can take it different directions. Oh, well, I'm a complete liability at a dinner party because I do so many things <laughs> right. and I've had a wonderful amazing life of so many experiences what do I do now well I'm basking in the fact that I met Frank Skinner the comedian last night right yeah I saw that perform, and yeah. that was that's terribly chuffing chuff very chuffed by that I've, I'm dealing with um the oh what if Frank Skinner didn't think I was good enough which teaches me I've got still there's so far, so far to, to go tonight I'm uh, performing in a competition for the old comedian of the year uh, this afternoon, I'm spending time hanging out with friends, and we may go pottering around some nice places in London because I'm from Devon, so London's a treat for me now. Yeah, I, used, right. I used to live in London when I never went to any of the nice places because I was too tied up with going to work and yep. then going home That's and being how it knackered. Is. Yep. So I come to visit London and I enjoy, enjoy it. Uh, I shall go home on Monday. I shall walk our two beagles. I shall cuddle my husband. I shall write another Huffington Post blog. I shall get on with some more comedy. I will see some parishioners. Um, I may start editing a book that I wrote some years ago, which I'm now coming back to. And I will get on with the everyday process, which is so important to me, of finding out how to enjoy life. Right. How to be happy every day and to to make conscious choices about whether I am being happy because I've spent far too many years of my life in what I call a low-grade misery, low-grade misery, and allowing other people's opinions of me to matter. Right. And generally walking into other people's opinions of me that weren't that good and... I'm, I'm learning how to find what my truth is and quite, what I love is talking to somebody like you because quite often until I voice something, I don't know what I believe. Mm-hmm. Me too, yeah. You know, so I've, I've heard something and I thought, I filtered it and I thought, yes, that, that, that sits with me, that resonates with me and I'd like to discuss it with somebody because then they're going to come along with another point of view and then I'm going to go away from that conversation and go, okay, I've got that and that now, so what do I think? Yeah. And then you sort of go with, what makes me happy? Because actually... Elizabeth Gilbert, the author who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, came up with a profound saying. It wasn't hers, it was a friend of hers. She said, all the trouble and strife in this world is caused by unhappy people. And that's a very deep, very simplistic, very profound phrase. If you're happy, you don't go around causing misery to others. I think it's a profoundly unselfish thing to do to be happy because after all nobody ever comes up to you and says tell me what is the secret of your misery and failure I really want to know <laughs> they don't they say what's the secret if they think you're doing well yeah absolutely and the only thing that everybody wants in all the people who want to be famous all the people who want to be wealthy are actually doing it so at the end of the day they can sit down and think that was a good day mm-hmm and for whatever reason, that's what we want. Well, I mean, hopefully they're doing it for that reason. I mean, I think that's the, the sad thing is, and the frustrating thing is, that some people, they, they, they lose that. 
and so when they get to whatever success means they're still they're still striving be... for more and more exactly, and more exactly. yes the, the first million is not enough the second million right. is not enough but that's because they've lost the ability of actually being happy and they've projected it onto the finances and right this... whereas I'm at a point where I'm just like all I want to do is earn a, sm- a, a very small amount of money to just allow me to enjoy life generally like I, I actually don't want to have that much money or success I just want enough to be able to, to do the things I love yeah. Um, and I, I'm not currently in that position fully, um, but I but I look for like that's that's my own that's the only thing I'm really aiming for in terms of my own personal happiness. Although success is a, a complicated thing, obviously I want more reach. I want to reach more people, and obviously you do too. I mean, you're blogging for uh, the Huffington Post. You're doing comedy. You don't do comedy unless you want to talk to a, a room full of people. Oh, I just want to show off. <laughs> I was never allowed to show off as a kid, exactly, so this is therapy right. for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, sure, but, yeah. but 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 by doing that, it means that you you do have an interest in your ideas reaching more mm-hmm. people. You're an ordained priest, right? Yes. And you're also a comedian. Which came first? Oh, well, the, the priesthood came first, but by right. a very long and convoluted... Uh, what was that route? How did you get to be a Well, um, I, it all started in 1988 when I met my first husband and he was an atheist and I was what you call an armchair Christian which meant I turned up at Christmas and maybe at Easter and christenings, weddings, funerals. I didn't think about it at all. It was just there. I'd been to a church school, uh, wasn't bothered about it and he was an atheist. A year after we were married, he died from cancer. And as I was sitting by his hospital bed um, in the last few days of his life, the hospital chaplain came along and said, uh, what religion are you, my dear? And I said, Church of England. And he said, and what is religion is your husband? And I said, oh, he's an atheist. And he said the immortal words, oh, I'm sorry, my dear, but if he doesn't even believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, he can't go to heaven. Now, you're going, and at the time it was devastating, but now I know that was an angel. (laughs) because it just woke me up. This man who was dying was a better man than I. I'd been a bit of a trollop in my youth, or a would-be trollop, actually. You know, and and that just... I've got no no issue with people being trollops. Well, I was enjoying some of my trolloping. I'd like to have been a better trollop, frankly, (laughs) but there you go. Um, um, It just woke me up to this really stupid, I will say stupid view that because I've been raised one way, that was the right way to, to think about things, because I had to walk down the aisle after Henry's coffin, hearing him down to hell by the words of the Christian funeral service. I'd asked the vicar to change the words of I am the resurrection and the life, but he said, no, that's the way it is, dear. And I didn't have the courage back then to give Henry an atheistic funeral, though nowadays you've got all sorts of in-between funerals right. that are available, right. and that's how I started ministry. Um, I was so upset by the fact that he couldn't have a funeral that reflected something in between. And I threw that rotten bastard Jesus out of the window at that point and and went headlong into the new age, spirituality and healing and Buddhism and things like that. And then one day I realised that even though I was perfectly happy with chakras and Buddhists and and, uh, all that kind of stuff, what I was missing was that in the corner of the room was sitting Christianity rotting quietly with a nice pink rug over it and a load of tea lights and candles but it was still there going you hate me you hate me you hate me and I did 
So I realized that I had to do something about that, and that meant getting my fingers dirty and going down into it and finding out what was the truth underneath it. So I enrolled at Birmingham University in in the theology department to study New Testament Greek, because I thought, well, if I study the Gospels in Greek, I'll get to know what actually this Christianity is about. And then I found out there's 32,000 different versions of the New Testament in Greek. Fortunately, only 5,000 of them have significant differences, but that was important. Right. And then I uh, was very blessed in that I met a Jewish guy, and we ultimately got together. And he was at the furthest end of his rope from Judaism, like I was at the furthest end of my rope from Christianity. And we started studying Judaic mysticism, which is now known as Kabbalah. Not the Madonna stuff, nothing to do with the Kabbalah center. We studied with a Sephardi Jew in London about the mysticism, the oral tradition underpinning the Bible. And I was meeting people who were saying, well, no, of course it isn't like that. Read this and talk about it and discuss it. And I started finding magic and mystery in these teachings, which I'd only been taught were exclusive. And in fact, they're inclusive. They're they're a, a way of living life to be happy and to allow happiness and to help other people be happy. There's a lot more to it than that, but I found this was fascinating and I started applying it to Christianity and I wrote some books and went on studying it. And in the meantime, I was doing funerals. I did funerals for people on the exact level of faith in that family, for whatever funeral they wanted. These, of course, are now um, commonplace, not commonplace, but wonderfully easy to get hold of. You can have a fun- any kind of funeral now, but this right. was 25 years yeah, ago, yeah. and you couldn't then. And one day I was doing a funeral for a guy who'd been murdered in London. And I was doing an unusual sort of funeral because I'd known this guy And even though it was a terrible tragedy that he had been murdered, it had come at a point in his life where you could almost see that he'd made a choice to leave. He'd completed what he needed to do. Things had gone in a wrong direction in many ways. He wasn't well, he wasn't happy, he was in debt. And he'd been talking for a long time about how he actually wanted to get out. He'd had enough. And he was given this chance to save somebody's life, which he did and he died a hero. And you could almost sense him going, I did it, I got out, I cleared everything. And so we were doing this funeral along the lines of, yes, it's a terrible tragedy for us, we've lost him, but what an extraordinary story this is. That this man who was saying, I want to go, went in a blaze of glory and saved somebody's life in the process and helped the police apprehend somebody they'd been after for years and hadn't been able to catch. So what, you know, (laughs) this is extraordinary. And I did this funeral and a guy in the congregation was a bishop in the independent Catholic church. Independence broke away from the Pope at the end of the 19th century over all sorts of things like papal infallibility and homosexuality and all that. And they're a much more liberal church. And this guy found my phone number and phoned me up out of the blue and said, I was sitting in the congregation and God spoke to me and he said, you need her and she needs you. I'm going to invite you for ordination. Would you like to come and study in seminary? And I went, you must be out of your mind. Because, no, (laughs) that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not a Catholic. I'm, you know, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not any of that. And he was very smart. He said, I tell you what, Invite me up for the weekend. He was a single man and his mother was dead, you know. He didn't get roast dinners. He'd invite me up for the weekend, cook me a nice roast dinner, and if by Sunday evening you're not interested, we'll say no more about it. And he just came up and talked to me. And at the end of it, I realised that this was the road I'd chosen to walk. And it was going to be really difficult. 
and every step was going to be a challenge. But what is life for? But to make peace with this thing I'd been so angry with and to actually surrender to it and be somebody who's inside the box. I'm technically a heretic because Roman Catholics don't believe in independent Catholicism and lots of people don't believe in any of this, this stuff. But I was ordained in a fully... I did seminary, I was ordained. I put on the robes, I wear the dog collar, not all the time. And so I'm standing inside the box saying, I know how bad some of this is. I know how difficult it is. I know the evil that has been done in the name of the religion I stand up for. And I'm standing here to say at the grassroots level, I'm willing to hear it. Wow. I mean, that's a, an impressive position to and get And probably the longest answer you've ever had to that question. No, no, no. I'm, no well, certainly not. There, there, there are probably longer answers to that question out there. But the, that's an interesting... It's an interesting place to get to. I mean, it's an interesting journey to go. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who is agnostic, like uh, militantly so. I, I, I refuse to, uh, to believe or, or, or not believe. Um, and, you know, but I have a lot of problems with uh, organised religion. And, so do I. And, yeah, and it's interesting hearing a, an ordained priest say that they don't like organised religion. You know. Well... The one I'm in is nice because it's, <laughs> it actually says one source of energy of all things, many aspects to it, it's all love, it's all generosity, it's all kindness, so help people find that. It doesn't mind if they find that in their baby, in their iPhone, in a concert at the Royal Festival Hall while walking on the moor. What, what, the answer is always seek love. You know, and some people do it inside a formulaic thing, as in this is the one God, and I'm not going to... In their universe, it is. Mm. But we all live in parallel universities, and everyone has to be respected, because that's where the person lives, and that is the person's life, and I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Somebody can come up to me and say, that bit you said at the beginning about drawing negative stuff, I've had a horrible life, I've never never attracted any of it. And I'm going to say to them, I'm sure you're right. I'm talking from how my universe works. I have no knowledge of how your universe works. If you come to me, then you've got some interest in the universe I'm in, and if I can share some of that and it's going to help you, that's fantastic. But if you live in a universe where nothing I say is true... I love you, go well, we have nothing in common, probably better not to meet again, but have a great life. And I'm not saying that nastily, mm -hmm. I'm just sort of saying, if I can't be of any use to you, walk on. And if you can't be of any use to me with the greatest love in the world, I'm going to walk on, because I'm not going to waste your energy or my energy getting into something we can't resolve. Yeah, I mean, it, there's definitely that, that point in a conversation, in a, in a getting to know someone... Where you and it can happen very late because uh, because you don't always talk about everything when you start talk, meeting someone. Where you just get to that point where you're just like, no, there's. The, I, I described it the other day. I think it's like all of the bricks that I've built in my wall, like 
I'd have to explain how each one of those is made in order for you to understand why I'm sat at the top of yes. it. And you're at the top of another wall and you'd have to do the same thing. Yes. And I just don't have the time or the patience or the, or the belief that if I if, that I'm going to change my bricks, that I've built these bricks over, over the years. And I sure, I do change my, uh, my of opinion. Of course you do, yeah. My, but you need your bricks right now. Right. And right. I need my bricks right, right now. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I might change those bricks, but I'm not going to completely dismantle the, the wall. I might take it apart a bit and then rebuild it in a different way like and, and so that makes it look like I have very different opinions than than 10 15 years ago or whatever but what I've kind of learned over time is that I kind of that the, the root is still the same it's just the what, what how I understand the world has changed so my, my views on many things have changed very differently like I used to have much more negative attitude towards men I'm, I used to have a, a much more of a, a belief in a kind of gender binary where women were better than men um, but still it was a, a, a fiction a, mm. an unreality that and that's only one example of the many ways I've changed um, but but the but the at the centre of both of those beliefs was a, a belief in equality and in everybody like in love and all of these sorts of things. I just came to different conclusions yes. um, from those things, and so I can't change the root. No. I can only change the the branches, I guess. Well, I, I, actually, I think in the long run, if you wanted, you could change the root, but it's the root you need right now, mm. so don't change that, it. Maybe that's true, and maybe yeah. the root has changed or mm. whatever over time. Um, but I, I, I guess I'm, I, I guess the. The bigger overarching elements of things, like like believing in people and empathy and 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 and, uh, and yeah, connecting with people and things like that, haven't changed for me. Like I've just changed how I how I view them. But it's funny how believing in empathy and uh, equality and connecting with people can often and and does with me end up in a position where you're kind of like everything needs to change um, and everything that. Yeah, the, the, the before we can get better, we have to kind of almost get worse in a way like that things do need to be challenged. Sometimes we have you know. to unravel. I have right. to unravel, certainly. But what, what is interesting for me here is I've discovered the teachings of a chap called Neville Goddard. You can find him on the internet if you, if you like what I'm going to say. It's freeneville.com and it's a lot of teachings by a guy who was born in the 1920s. And he actually says that because of the way the mind works, you can change memory. And that's was very interesting to me because I know that some of my issues come from my parenting and there's no way I can change what happened but I've started going back in my mind and inventing little stories about what what could have happened what I would have liked to have happened and you do it by going back and imagining yourself as a child and seeing your mother and father responding differently to you and I've actually got a memory now because I've I've repeated it if you repeat a thought it becomes patterned in your mind. That's what memories are. They're repeatings. They're repeatings of things. Because yeah. you forget things if they didn't have an impact on you. Absolutely. And I always say, uh, my second husband left me once, but I made him leave me a thousand times because I was hacked off about it. Right. He only did it once. Right. But the wound got bigger and bigger the more I thought about it. And so yeah. it had to be unra- unraveled that way. So what I've done with my parents is I've gone back and I've actually envisioned a time when my mother played with me when I was about seven. Now that didn't happen because she was sick. So I've got a, a, a story where my mother plays with me in my toy farm. And I actually go back and do that two or three times a week. And I also have her watching me play acting, things like that, putting on the clothes from the play acting box because she was always, she was never interested in that kind of thing. And I now know that she was a frustrated actress herself. So it, it hurt her to see her children's right. that way. Uh, 
And because I've been doing that, my mother, who's been sort of quietly, we don't do that kind of thing, disapprovingly about my my comedy career and, and my priesthood and all that. My mother actually said to me last time she came, she said, well, of course, we always knew you should have been an actress. And that, according to my memory, or the things that happened in reality, is not true, Dave. Right, but, but maybe but she's rewriting I've, her memories too, I've right? rewritten me. Yeah. And she, when she's with me, has to be rewritten in my universe. And on the one hand, that's extraordinary. On the other hand, it's really annoying. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> so annoying. I've now got a mother who thinks, "Well, oh, my daughter should always have been an actress." You know, I don't know why you wasted all these years not being a performer. Right. But on the other hand, it's made me realise I've changed me. Right. Very slightly, so I have the right to be a performer. Right. And that is extraordinarily different different for me because I've always thought I didn't really I shouldn't probably I shouldn't do it but if I'm going to be a comedian and I'd like to be a successful comedian and I have a certain small amount of success then I've got to believe in it so I'm doing this task of saying I'm going back into my childhood to believe that I have a right to be where I am today. Yeah, I mean, when did, how did you become a comedian? Like, when did that come into the picture? Oh, well, that was, I, I'd say that was the, the lady or the guy, or the, the it upstairs, but uh, you're free to disbelieve me on that. But basically what happened was, people kept telling me when well, I did... If I do what, believe, I prefer to believe in the lady rather than the guy, so... Well, we're, we're, did you we're, know we're, we're the, the, at the beginning of the Bible, it's quite clear, the universe is created by the Elohim, which is a Hebrew feminine noun. So the goddess created the earth. It, Elohim is a feminine construct, Eloah, with a masculine plural ending. So it's a construct of uh, a male god impregnating a woman god who gave birth to the universe. And I love that. Cool. Yahweh doesn't even turn up until Adam and Eve are on the planet out of Eden. Uh, and Yahweh is the masculine god that we've been learned, yeah. is the tough guy. Yeah, otherwise known as the patriarch. Yeah. <laughs> so when you get into the language, you just go, my god, the earth is, and humanity is born of the goddess. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, so there I was. People kept saying, you're really funny. When I did workshops and talks and things, you should do stand-up. And I thought, yeah, right, you know. No, that's far too hard work for a start, and I'm not that funny. And then three people said it in the space of a fortnight. And in the God business, you know that if you get three prompts in a short period of time, it's a hint. And if you don't take notice of it, the next one's going to come with a brick attached to it. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, I'll just go on the internet and I'll Google Comedy Courses Birmingham, which is where I was living at the time. So I Googled Comedy Courses Birmingham, and one came up half a mile away from where I lived for 50 quid, which was very reasonable, starting the following Wednesday. And I thought I'd darn <laughs> because I really had to go and right, take that course right. so I enrolled on the course it's almost like yeah that's extra faith. synchronicity yeah synchronicity right and you don't have to believe in God for synchronicity no well the thing is I don't believe in God I don't, I don't not believe in God as I say I'm militantly agnostic but <laughs> I, as an artist I can't help but 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 relate to synchronicity even if I don't really believe that it happens yeah. like creatively it's kind of essential to sort of open yourself up to the possibility to the of what's happening yeah. to the muse yeah I mean the maybe muse, the muse or whatever like yeah. whatever it is the just I, I, or the subconscious or the collective unconscious or yeah. whatever you want to call it well the collective it. is amazing and it, so often you find an idea comes in and this happens in comedy as well you get a great idea 
You put it in your comedy, and two weeks later, you hear another comedian on the telly doing the same thing because the inspiration was there for the human to pick it up. And of course, the person who's on the telly has got the the credence, so you have to drop it and move on and get and get another idea. But ideas drop 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 from the heavens, you know. They, they do, and they, and we pick them up at pretty much the same kind of time. I kind of like it that there was a kind of. God had got the, the synchronicity music cue going for, for when you started to talk about it, like suddenly yeah. there's this orchestra. Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of like, to, to explain to, to, to listeners, the reason it kind of got a bit noisier in the middle of the conversation <laughs> is because all of the, the kids were kind of coming to go to the uh, concert, and now the concert's happening, it must be. Um, and I don't know, oh right, so it's coming out of a, 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 a there's a... Uh, a TV screen that's playing the concert, so that's where the sound is coming from. But it's not too bad. No, I, I it's rather like, beautiful. Uh, I don't know nicer. the name of the muse of, com- of the muse of music, but there is one. The, the nine muses. They're <laughs> right. supposed to be women, and I just love the legend yeah. of them. The, the muse of comedy is called Talia, and the muse of writing, it was sort of great long tomes, is Calli- Calliope. I used to right. call it Calliope, but it's Calliope, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think, I, I never know how to, that, that's the problem with all of the, the, yeah. the Greek names, I don't know how to pronounce them, but they're, yeah. uh, but my pronouncements, like my, how yeah. I pronounce them, are embedded in my mind, so I'm always afraid now yeah, to, but, to say them, whereas when I was, a, when I was younger, I would always throw it out, show off you all my Greek myth knowledge, but yeah. now I'm Well, and another thing, you've just reminded me of the other synchronicity, which is very important in this story, and i completely forgotten it. I wrote a book called A Woman's Worth, which is all about the divine feminine, feminine in the Hebrew Testament, looking at the stories of the women, because they are extraordinary. They tell chronologically the development of the human soul, of all the mistakes we make and how we get stronger and wiser or not, as the the time goes by, at least that's my theory. And I wrote this book, and I needed a front cover for it, and I'm very fond of uh, an artist called Jose Luis uh, Munoz, who lives in Cordoba, Spain, and paints wonderful pictures. And he did a series of pictures called Las Musas, The Muses. And the one I liked best was of Talia, muse of comedy, who's this gorgeous woman sitting there in, in ancient clothing, and she's looking serious, and she's holding the mask of comedy. You know, that, the idea yeah. of the mask of comedy in her hand. And I thought, that's the picture for the front of the book. So I chose the picture of the muse of comedy to be published on my book right. about women. Right. And seven months later, I'm in comedy. <laughs> so how's that for synchronicity? Right. I had no thought of doing that. And even though I'd, I'd done the comedy course, I just thought, I can't do this. I, I haven't got the intelligence. I haven't got the structure. I certainly haven't got the memory. I don't have the wit. And I, I got together about 10 minutes of reasonable comedy, and I started get, being offered gigs, because I'm unusual, because I wear my dog collar on the gigs. I didn't to start with. but And the scariest thing was telling my bishop I'd done it. <laughs> and he just laughed. He said, that's wonderful. The angel of mirth stands closest to the throne of God, which was a lovely thing to say. And, right. and then he told me this story, which he hadn't told me before. And it, it's of course, it's apocryphal. There's no proof. But I love it, and I think it's right. He said... The dog collar was originally the collar of Anubis, the Egyptian god of the underworld, the jackal-headed god. All the gods had collars, but Anubis has a specific collar. And he said the whole purpose of Anubis was when the soul dies, their heart was weighed against a feather. And if their heart was as light as a feather through happiness and good deeds, then they went to the good part of the underworld. And if their heart was heavier than a feather, they were devoured and went to the bad part of the underworld. 
not not hell, but the part of the underworld <laughs> yeah. where you had to work your way up to the heavens. That's one of right. the things that's I'm diverting. Get me back to Anubis in a minute. There is no teaching in the Bible about hell. It's all about the underworld. And all the teaching of the Bible is that you go through when you die on the level of your consciousness. So if you're miserable when you die, it's hard for you to get to the higher levels, echelons of heaven. But you will be taught on the other side how to get there. There is no hell, no eternal hell. There is always presence to take you to the to the happy the happy levels. Redemption is always possible. Redemption is is sure. Yeah. Redemption is certain for certain. everybody, including Hitler. But the people who will help Hitler are the ones he murdered. So he's got to go through all of that facing of the forgiveness and what he did and that may take a thousand thousand years right but even for hitler there's redemption in the knowledge of what he did and the, and he has to anyway that's another story back to anubis yeah um i was ready to say that but you did it yourself. thank you back to anubis <laughs> so he said that the the collar you wear the collar because it is your one bounden task as a minister to lift hearts and that is your only job is to bring people into their happiness. And if they want to be happy as an atheist, they're happy as an atheist. If they want to be happy as an agnostic, it's your job to help them be happy as an agnostic. <laughs> you will be best at helping them if they want to have a faith in God because you have a faith right. in God. But your job is always to lift hearts. So what better way than comedy? I, when he told me that, I just burst into tears. Yeah, bit. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, people can often devalue comedy as... I think there's a, a lot of power of power in it and lots of connection of, 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 of you know entertainment is kind of a a reductive word in some ways or at least how we how we use it now has become so but I think there's so much importance in just connecting with people in right raising their spirits and all of those sorts of things which we look on as kind of lesser sometimes than the big drama stuff but I'm I'm very big believer in comedy and you know there isn't this difference as well between comedy and tragedy. They are the same. Of course, I mean, they are comedians are always tell- mask, yeah. comedians are always telling you how rubbish their lives are. <laughs> you know, I don't do true. the I've got too small the dick comedy because let's face it, I haven't got one at all. But I do do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, yesterday I was performing in Camden, and I was able to say quite honestly that you know the, the rest of the comedians have been talking about you know how they were weird or their names were odd or something like that, and I said you do not know how unloved or unwanted or how weird you are until you have walked through Camden Lock on a Saturday in a dog collar (laughs) because there will be no eye contact whatsoever. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, dog collars are an interesting thing. I I was speaking to somebody else who's a a, a priest, uh, an Anglican priest, and uh, he was saying that when he goes to his school and to pick up his children, he he doesn't tend to wear the dog collar because he doesn't want the other parents to... And also, if if you're on the the bus or whatever with a dog collar, everyone comes to you with their problems, and he's not always in the right place himself Mm -hmm. to to, to be a priest in that moment. Like, he's off duty, but his dog collar makes him always on. Yes. So it was interesting to think of that, of like... uh, when I see dog collars, I have all of these other connotations. Yeah. I, I never tend to think of what it's like to have one and to be someone walking through the world with that dog collar. And it's kind of like when we met today, you were mentioning how uh, on Facebook I've been talking about now I've got long hair at the moment and yes. that suddenly everyone's having a different reaction to me. Um, the, the connotations people get with my long hair are probably you know, nothing in comparison to the connotations people get with a dog collar, I should think. 
Although the interesting thing is, with this long hair and this beard, uh, one of the things that I co constantly get uh, is people shouting Jesus at me, which is a strange, strange thing for an agnostic to hear. Well, yeah, and Jesus wasn't white. <laughs> right, that's the, uh, that's the most annoying thing about it. Yeah. He's like, absolutely, he wasn't white. He said, whatever, there are a few different theories about what skin tone he might have had. None of them are white. No. So. <laughs> no, but I, that's... Taking that back to the comedy, that's one of the jokes that I have. It's probably not one of my best jokes, but I make people think with that because I'll say, you know, one of the things I've learned is Jesus wasn't white. Apart from the ethnicity, the guy started his ministry with 40 days in the desert without shade, sunblock or a hat. Right. Of course he was brown. Right. Unless he was one of those Jewish redheads, in which case he looked like a lobster. You know, right. and, and people will just laugh at that because it's a vaguely funny joke, but they may just go home and go, Jesus wasn't white. Well, yeah. Okay. So what's going on with all that then? What, what's the projections on Jesus and what else is there about that? I mean, and I also talk about the fact that the scariest thing about a vicar is everybody's terrified that I'm going to go, have you found Jesus? Yeah. You know, which are the yeah. four scariest words in the world after um, we need to talk. <laughs> uh, and I will say, always say, ironically, those are the four words that... Uh, only ever said by people that Jesus would be avoiding like the plague. Right. Because people think, and also, uh, right, I saw an evangelical Christian who's a friend of mine on Facebook, and I find him very challenging, but I'm sticking with it. Um, he was saying that Jesus was talking about the evils of the Pharisees, who were the Jewish um, holy men at the time, Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he was calling them hypocrites. He wasn't. He was talking in a general thing about anybody who says, my religion is the only right one, my way is the only way, I'm following the law, therefore I'm better than you. So the people who go around saying, have you found Jesus, you can't survive if you haven't found Jesus, you know, you have to get to Jesus. Firstly, that's a misinterpretation of the Greek of I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, but we could get into that another time. It's a long thing. <laughs> and secondly, it's really arrogant, and thirdly, it's not reading the text in any way, shape, or form the way Jesus would have said it. You know, And Jesus would be avoiding these people like a plague. And, and people just go, oh, the relief when I do that joke. Yeah, I think that's it. Like, judgment is, is such a, a complicated yeah. thing that everyone has around religion. Yeah. So often, like, people who are religious or not religious, everyone's really worried about being judged. Yes. Um, and it's... And, and busy judging other people right. as well, yeah. And as, as much as... I, I mean, I've read the Bible. I'm, I, I uh, have a lot of sympathy with a lot of what Jesus is quoted as saying in that. Um, although I kind of... He's a little bit kind of more anti-sex at times than I than I am, um, but but generally speaking, I, I love his his you know the Sermon on the Mount is pretty much a wonderful piece of kind of humanist or socialist or whatever ist you want to kind of some see it as uh, writing of. of, of expression um it's just a bit about uh, having adultery if you look at committing adultery if you look at somebody else i'm not too down with um but apart from that well <laughs> yes that is a very tricky one and that's certainly for advanced students but it, it's, it's interesting that he's teaching on marriage because i was divorced my first husband died and his second husband and i'm divorced and i was still in the armchair christian no i wasn't i was in the new age bit then i hadn't been ordained but i was really struggling with that one about you know you don't get married again after divorce and then I again I looked into the Greek and I looked into what it actually said and adultery is when you mix two things that destroy each other okay 
Interesting. So if you stay so in a Jesus rotten was marriage, pro open relationships. No, no. As long as you're was, all honest, like, no, like no, how was, I structure my life. Well, if I, he was saying, saying if you're in a relationship was, that's destroying <laughs> you, it's adulterous. Right. Ah, interesting. So, that's very interesting. Yeah. So then, and, and also, uh, when you end one relationship, if you go into another relationship, if you take the energy and the beliefs about the previous partner into the new relationship, that's also adulterous, because you're not coming to a new relationship fresh. And when I married my third husband, we waited five years, because I said, I'm not marrying you until I've got the, all the rubbish from the previous one out because I'm not bringing this in right. and projecting it onto you. Yeah, that's, a sensible, that's a sensible way of doing it, yeah. I think. I mean, I don't know, like, this sort of separation of all of these different people, I guess it's not quite where I'm at in my, my attitude about these things, I guess. I'm, I'm sort of... I think of monogamy as a kind of... Um, it's not what we're naturally predisposed to do. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tactic I m massively respect um, and I'm really supportive of all of my uh, monogamous friends. Um, but it's not something that I personally, at this point in my life, do. Um, and so it's kind of like... But I think that, that love... There's something within what you just said that kind of does speak to how I structure my life. In that it is about like um, secrets and conflict and 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 having two people considering two two individuals in in uh, as being kind of you're judging them, you're choosing one person over another mm -hmm. rather than seeing that that's how I connect with this person, that's how I connect with those, that person, and they're not in competition. No. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing to think about the idea of uh, and particularly because one of the reasons I'm not pro, that pro monogamy is I've seen what happens when um, a marriage tries to stay together that isn't working a marriage was gone adulterous right. it's That's gone poisonous it's interesting that yeah. that is how you would term that yeah. and also uh, one that Jesus is saying that people just they just don't read it they say those he says those whom God has brought together let no man put asunder very few marriages are brought together by God interesting and interesting. you know it, we only started having church services regularly in about the 17th, 18th century. Most marriages are social contracts. Yeah. And a lot of them are about sex. Well, yeah, or property. I mean, yeah. initially that's what Exactly, they used to be about, about property. And um, very few, even the marriages that are in church are very, very rarely anything to do with these two people are destined to be together to work for good. That is the only kind of marriage brought together by God. Any other marriage, fine. It's brought together by man. Man can break it. But a marriage that's brought together by God will be broken only by God. How do you know if your marriage is brought together by God, though? Um, you dedicate it to God. Okay. You actually know before you get into the marriage. I mean, it's my a, second it's a marriage, choice. It's, it's a, a choice. My second marriage to the, uh, my Jewish husband, we said, you know, we are coming together in the... To, we love each other and we're having great sex, but we're coming together to, in service. We want to work together. And we actually said that at that, the service. We said we dedicate our lives to God and to each other. Uh, so that was a marriage brought together by God. And when it ended, it was going wrong. We were having counselling. Things weren't good. And I remembered that this was a marriage brought together by God. So I actually went to a, there's a, a website called Silent Unity. Unity Church is a wonderful church. And they, they'll pray for you 24-7 in positive ways. They say, I see you healed, I see you well, I see you this. And I said, pray for divine order in my marriage, please. It was brought together by God. It's not good at the moment. I give it back to God right now. I give it to God. And my husband left me the following day. 
So I couldn't even be pissed off, and that was so annoying. <laughs> I was pissed off, obviously, but it, that, the synchronicity of that was so clear. It was like, I said, OK, you brought us together. I'm holding on with tooth and claw here, and I've got to let go. Because that marriage had become adulterous. Right. But so you, you can see I'm a bit weird, and so I'm putting it in a different way. I don't think You're, that's a problem, though. A bit no. weird's good. I mean, there's, there's, there's not enough uh, different ways of looking at things quite often, so I'm, I appreciate yeah. you. And, you know, the fact you're not monogamous, that's fine. Are you hurting anybody? Probably not. Then there isn't a problem, don't is think that? so. I mean, no. often, often not being monogamous is, is more of a concept than an actual practical <laughs> reality. Um, it's more of a kind of, yeah, setting yourself free or yourselves free. I mean, me and my partner have been together for 15 years we, we opened up our relationship after 11 so we, we, we didn't do it kind of like rashly mm. um, and for us it's a way of staying together of, of, of meaning that we that it's not adulterous that, yeah I mean for us it's 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 that if we were to not have the option to hook up with other people then we might end up splitting up because we wanted to yeah. do that because yeah. and that was the only way we would be able to do that if we'd have carried on yeah. looking at it as monogamous um, so yeah, I mean, both of us are, are, the, are the children of divorces anyway, so we have kind of like more complicated relationships yes. with if these things work anyway. But yeah, no, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. I'm, I'm so aware that I could basically, I mean, we could, I could record for hours and hours and hours and I would be really interested. It would be a brave and, person but, who's but, got but, to the, the end but, of all right, this lot. Right, the, exactly, the audience wouldn't necessarily want to listen to, you, to us for five hours or whatever. <laughs> but, but I mean, so I'm wrapping it up now at the at kind of the normal time I do. But I'm very aware that there's so much more that, there, that we could have talked about that, you know, we haven't touched on. So people should definitely um, seek you out online and stuff and, and find you to, to find out more about it. Because there's like elements, because I'm just looking at your Huffington Post uh, blog kind of bio there's so many areas we've just completely <laughs> missed out of your life experience and your knowledge Never experience. invite me to dinner, never. Uh, well, I think, I think from, from this, based on this conversation, I think you're a brilliant uh, person to invite <laughs> to dinner. But th the last thing I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? No. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't. Um, please find me on Facebook if you like this. Please find my website. It's maggywhitehouse.com. It's M-A-G-Y. M-A-W-G-Y Whitehouse.com Apparently it's Welsh or Icelandic It's not Maggie with an I-E um, I don't currently have any books to plug but, like, but if you want to Google me You're going to find my YouTube videos You're going to find my Amazon page You want to go and buy some of my books That's fantastic, I've written factual and fiction I always like it when people buy my books uh, If you want to show up uh, at a comedy gig If you know anybody who organises comedy gigs Um get in touch and, and book me that would be lovely I love travelling around the world meeting people and doing comedy well brilliant well thank you so much for coming on uh, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you and the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience well thank you for listening goodbye and may your non-denominational gender neutral cosmic concept or not go with you today <laughs> bye everyone <laughs> If you'd like to donate to Getting Better Acquainted, go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, which has a button on it where you can sign up to donate via PayPal. If you listened to today's episode and you thought, what I'd like is to hear Dave talking for around about an hour 
then go over to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast and listen to the most recent episode, which is me doing my solo show about my relationship with being a man, which is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. To find out more about that show and to donate to, towards helping me continue making that, go to www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. Or go over to the Stand Up Tragedy website, which is www.standuptragedy.co.uk. This year, Stand Up Tragedy aren't doing any of our normal variety nights, but we are still putting on Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we showcase performers doing double bills of their full-length shows. We've booked in two of those at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 13th and 14th of July, where four of our favourite performers will be previewing the tragic shows that they're taking to the Edinburgh Festival this year. You can find Getting Better Acquainted and any of my other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. All the things I do are on Facebook, so you can find them and like them or friend them on Facebook. Getting Better Acquainted is on Twitter at GBA Podcast. Stand Up Tragedy is on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.